0: Hi, I'm Jo Litson. Welcome to The Thinking Traveller, a series that draws on the passions, expertise, and knowledge of Academy Travel's tour leaders to bring a wealth of insight to your travels, one topic at a time. Goethe described him as a genius after seeing the gloriously symmetrical Villa Rotunda just outside Vicenza in Northern Italy. Thomas Jefferson so loved his architecture that he used it as the inspiration for his plantation residence, Monticello. Andrea Palladio was one of the greatest architects ever. Living during the Italian Renaissance, he was inspired by classical Roman architecture, but used it in a new, inventive way. His buildings were perfectly proportioned, intelligent and gracious, yet unpretentious and practical, whether he was designing a church, a palace, or a country house. Dr Nick Gordon is here today to tell us about Palladio's life and career and why his buildings and his writing continue to influence architects today. Nick is a cultural historian and a painter and he leads art tours to Italy and various other parts of Europe. Welcome again, Nick. Great to have you back. Thanks, Drew. Uh, Where was Palladio born?
1: Uh, Palladio was born just outside of Padua uh, and ended up spending most of his life, uh, not traveling very far from that kind of region in the Veneto, from between Vicenza, Padua, Verona, and Venice, he kind of uh, for the most of his, part of his life, he was just in one very small corner of Italy.
0: So, what was his? What kind of family was he born into?
1: He was born into a fairly uh, working family. He, so, his father was an artisan, uh, and as a young boy, he was apprenticed to a local stonemason's studio in Padua and that he would be there. He was there from, we think, probably about 10 years old until he was 16 when he uh, had the wherewithal to kind of break the terms of his, his contract for his apprenticeship because he got a better offer uh, to go down to Vicenza and start working for a, a larger uh, stonemason and builders uh, workshop there. But nonetheless, even though he kind of broke the contract, uh, he ended up pay out the term of it and uh, remained friends with his original uh, stonemason teacher.
0: So did, he worked as a stonemason for a while then, did he? Uh,
1: yes, right up until uh, about 1538. So about the first 30 years of his life, he wasn't an architect. We know that once he moves to Vicenza in when's that? about 1524, uh, he's working for the, the Perimuro workshop. And there he starts off doing some stonemasonry, bricklaying, and ends up being a site foreman. So he doesn't have a background as an architect. He's got a background as a mason, and then as a master builder.
0: So how did he become an architect?
1: Well, it was while he was uh, building a villa. He was the site manager for a villa that uh, a local intellectual, um, Tresino, was des- had designed his new villa that he wanted and he was paying the, the Pedemuro workshop to build it for him. And he happened to be going and having a look at the progress and got chatting with the site manager, who happened to be Andrea della Gondola. And from that, he kind of realised this guy is actually got some interesting ideas about architecture and seems to have the uh just something about him that kind of he wasn't your ordinary bricklayer, he wasn't your ordinary stonemason, that he was there was something about him. And he picks him up, he starts uh working with him, he then provides the the money and the backing on all the introductions he needs to provide him with a full education. He has him learn, although he's 30, he has him learn Latin, a smattering of Greek, he introduces him to A number of scholars in Padua and in and around the University of Padua. He meets some of the great architects of the day there too. uh, And he seems to kind of walk into that world very, very easily and be accepted by the intellects and the architects of his day. So Trisoni was
0: vitally important in his starting his career then.
1: Absolutely. Kind of he, for about the first 10 years of Palladio's career, where he kind of transforms from being a builder into being an architect, it's mostly the the backing of uh, Tresino that allows that to happen, the man he, who pays for it and makes the introductions.
0: And he takes him to Rome as well, doesn't he?
1: Uh, yes, so in the 1540s, uh, because Palladio needs to understand Roman architecture firsthand and there isn't so much. There is there is some obviously surviving in the Veneto, in Verona, for example, but he takes him down to Rome to study kind of the, the great Roman architecture that had survived and so he has firsthand knowledge of what classical architecture should look like.
0: So patrons were always important in his career?
1: Absolutely. I think in any um, artist or architect's career during the Renaissance, it's all about being able to maintain good relationships with uh, often very, very powerful patrons. Part of that's practical. If you want to kind of build buildings, then you, you need to know people who are willing to fork out the money to do so.
0: So how did his um, career really get going then, his architectural career?
1: It was uh, surprisingly slow. Uh, so for about the first 10 or 15 years, he's got some smaller commissions, mostly for building villas and some some urban palaces uh, in and around Vicenza. And these are mostly kind of once uh, Trissino introduces him to his other kind of uh, patron friends in Vicenza, they like what he does and says, oh yeah, kind of a build me a new palace, design me a new palace, that's great. Uh, I've got a villa, uh, needs a new and a few new buildings, we'll pass him the work. But in that early period, no one is really completing his buildings, uh, especially his villas in the whole, they're, they're deciding what kind of, yes, that's a great design for the whole villa, but I actually only need that bit in the middle. So this whole design over here, don't just don't worry about that. Just kind of build me that chunk. But so you kind of when you see his early villas, you kind of they're a little bit strange looking. It's hard to see what people saw in him. In him, but it's until you look at his designs, for what he wanted to build there, that you start seeing that there is a great vision for what a new villa should look like.
0: How did he get the name Palladio?
1: Well, it's not a, a name he was born with. He was born Andrea della Gondola. His family have nothing to, to do with gondolas. It's just a, a family name. But he gets given his name, Palladio, by his uh, Tresino, kind of his first great patron, who didn't give it to him directly. Palladio was a character in an epic novel, or an epic poem, sorry, that Tresino had written about the liberation of Italy from the Goths. So it's a, it's a long poem about the Justinian reconquest of Italy. Uh, when kind of Justinian comes in, it's this expulsion of Gothic influences in Italy. But Justinian's general, Belisarius, gets lost with the army in this labyrinth, and then an angel appears to them to guide them out of that labyrinth. And as the angel is going through, taking, showing them the way out, the angel is ex- explaining to them all the different architectural elements they can see, uh, often in deadly boring detail, <laughs> But nonetheless, kind of it's uh he explains the architecture, and that's the name that again then gets given to Belladio after this character in a in an epic poem, so again, trassino's support exactly yes, yeah,
0: so he designed ch- you know once the career developed, so he designed churches and palaces, but also country houses, some of them farms, so it's quite a r- was that unusual in in that day,
1: not really, architects were. Very used to working across a whole range of different commissions. So, some of the most prestigious commissions you could get uh, to us sound dead boring. Uh, So, kind of if you're a state architect, you're mostly building walls, bridges, military fortifications, and you might do some palaces on the side as well. Uh, But to build, go from building palaces to churches to villas was fairly normal that once an architect was able to become established they would kind of buy often through the same patrons. So you'd be building a villa for someone, their friends come and see their villa and they think, well, why don't you build our urban palace for you? And then perhaps a step after that, they think, well, kind of all well, there's a public commission for a new church going, kind of we need a new church. You're the best architect we've ever seen. We have all bought your work and now we want you to build the church. So it's quite it's quite common for architects to have to to move from one type of building to another in the Renaissance.
0: So tell us a bit about his style, what his inspirations were and how he developed them.
1: Uh, so he works very, very closely using classical models of architecture for uh, what you see kind of on the front of his palaces and on the front of his villas that often look like uh, temple fronts, classical temple fronts. And he was inspired by the idea that originally the temple front was a domestic form of architecture, so it was the original, the original shelter that was then developed into a, a temple in the classical period, and he wanted to bring that back to domestic architecture. So you start getting these temple fronts. But what is underpinning his architecture is this fantastic understanding of geometry and proportion. So when you start looking at if you break down one of his buildings into a number of distinct elements, you find you've got two, often two dovecots at the end that stick up, then you've got a low flat area and then a central raised area again. And these are repetitions of the number three, five, eight, and 16. Uh, And these are variations of a set of proportions that are derived from the golden mean. And every single room in a Palladian building follows these uh, kind of, I suppose it's more like a a fugue. It's a rhythm and variation of a theme uh, all based on these proportions.
0: So it's got this lovely harmonic feel, very mathematical in a way, I guess. Yes.
1: But without feeling cold, which is wonderful. So again, it's it uh, is quite like a piece of music, that there can be a lot of very precise measurements, precise relationships, uh, very precise repetitions. But although it, it could feel very, very cold, it doesn't. He kind of keeps the proportions very similar uh, for domestic spaces. He keeps them uh, in a way that makes it very comfortable. So when you walk into a room uh, designed by Palladio, you don't feel dominated, you don't feel oppressed. It feels quite intimate and domestic still.
0: So the exteriors, he did away with a, too much ornamentation. They weren't very lavish. But inside, he had these extraordinary frescoes in, in a lot of villas and paintings on ceilings and things. So just tell us a little bit about that and the way he want, wanted the simplicity outside but some of the lavish artwork inside.
1: The part of the reason for the simplicity is, especially in his villa farmhouses, was that the Venetians who were often paying for these to be built were outsiders that only recently conquered that territory on the mainland. And as they were acquiring this land, they didn't want to seem like kind of just yet another bunch of aristocrats. These aren't kind of buffets on horseback. These are cultured gentlemen. Uh, so he designed this new style, a kind of very refined, very elegant but quite restrained look along the front to try and reflect the desire of his patrons, not to seem like they're over the top. Uh, it's the idea that's been brought into England through his work of, the, of this is what uh, the gentleman's manor should look like. It's not some duke's castle in the countryside. It's a, a different set of values that Palladio is able to articulate in his architecture. But when you step inside, you do get these fabulous frescoes. Uh, so in the Villa of One of His Patrons, Daniele Barbaro, uh, the frescoes in there are all done by Paolo Veronese. So you get this beautiful restrained... Architecture, but inside that you've got this very, very, very playful uh, decoration. Where suddenly it looks like there's a, a door opening up in the wall, and the servants are looking out to see what's happening. But it, it's all just trompe It's all just uh, a mirage. Or you look up into the ceiling, and you can see the family on a balustrade staring down, kind of leaning on the balustrade, looking at you underneath. So kind of it, uh, it subverts some of the architecture and what it looks like from the outside. You've got. Austerity on the outside and then playfulness on the inside.
0: So how did the, his influence then start to build? Because as you say, you know, English architects eventually adopted it and Americans. So how did it start to develop?
1: He was a fantastic self-promoter uh, without being too over the top about it. I was often very, very subtle. Uh, so first of all, there were his four books on architecture where he redefined what architecture should look like. At the same time that he's composing that, he's designing the drawings for a new edition of uh, Vitruvius. uh, And he kind of is able to redefine what classical architecture looks like because he's the person who provides the drawings to to go to illustrate the text on classical architecture. And unsurprisingly, kind of how he sees classical architecture is very, very similar to his buildings and his style. So he's able to kind of create, I suppose, a good closed loop there where people think that classical architecture looks a certain way uh, because it looks like the way Palladio wants it to look. But then on top of that, he's able to write guidebooks to the churches of Rome, uh, guidebooks to the modern architecture of Rome as well, guidebooks to the classical architecture of Rome, so that when people up until about the 18th century go to visit Rome, uh, their guidebook is written by Palladio telling them about it, and that helps kind of expand his reputation. I suppose the final part that really helps his reputation grow, though, is his own architectural drawings, the work he wrote about his own architecture. And uh, you find that generation after generation of architects are inspired by what they see in this book, about his, uh, which shows his ground plans and his elevations without having seen one of his buildings in the flesh. So Christopher Wren, for example, or Thomas Jefferson are both inspired by Lardio, uh, but neither of them have ever, ever seen a building that he that he'd built in the flesh, so to speak. But it's all through the drawings.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. But, I mean, obviously people love the buildings. Yes. So they loved a villa, so another villa was commissioned and so exactly. on. But, you know, we've got people like Goethe travelling and then being yeah. absolutely blown away by what he saw.
1: There is something very, I think, enduring in his buildings and in his approach, the way he just redefines what a villa should look like. Uh, and they are very, very calming as you approach them there. They've got a very subtle, elegant beauty. Uh, They're not too over the top. They're restrained enough, but classicising enough that they keep appealing to people century after century.
0: So, how many of the buildings remain today?
1: About forty odd. Mm, Some of them uh, were were completed after his death. Uh, So, some of his major commissions, so the grand churches in Venice, uh, were completed after his death, such as San Giorgio Maggiore, which even had. Uh, the term on, it, on the, the contractual terms for the person completing it after his death was that they were only allowed to uh, modify the design if there were a structural fault that would cause the entire thing to collapse. That so they had the design, Palladio dies before it's completed, but it has to be built exactly the way that he intended it. Some of the buildings are, are complete, they're the ones he completed in his own life. But then a lot of his earlier buildings, it's only fragments of what he intended. So just kind of the central residence and not the whole complex that he designed.
0: So how would you measure his importance then as an architect?
1: I think it's very hard to underestimate his influence, partly because he redefines what classical architecture should look like, but also because his style becomes ubiquitous. It becomes part of a Western idea of what buildings should look like. So you see that straight away in England, for example, when Inigo Jones is looking at Palladio's actual buildings. He's talking to Palladio's successor, Scamozzi, and organises to buy huge numbers of Palladio's drawings and bring them back to England. Uh, and Inigo Jones starts this idea of, well, we should be building these new gentlemanly style villas that Palladio has designed. It even comes through into kind of a contemporary Australian domestic architecture where you can see kind of Palladian elements even into Turbo of large estates that are being built, the idea of the large grand house having to have a certain appearance in the front often draws on a Palladian architectural language.
0: I saw somebody mention in an article that the McMansions in America
1: yes. <laughs> have probably been inspired to a degree by by his work. Yes, uh, for the most part, I don't think the McMansions uh, do it nearly as well. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm sure not. But there are definitely elements in kind of your classic McMansion in that appearance, even the way that you have that slightly kind of at the, the well, I suppose at the front, kind of like a thrust stage coming out and the staircase leading up between kind of the columns that take you into the house. Uh, the idea that you have uh, around that central kind of entrance, you have wings that extend slightly out from the sides to give a sense of balance and width to the building uh, are things that were developed by Palladio. And yes, we you can find them in McMansions in the US, in Australia as well.
0: In Italy, um, how easy is it? To get to see them these days,
1: well, a lot of them are quite closely grouped together. So, if you want to introduce look at his palace designs, then you can go to Vicenza, uh, where his palace building started, and a number of them are still uh, there. And you can walk in in and around some of them. If you're looking for his churches, the best place to go is Venice, where you have his kind of these great churches that he he was commissioned to build in Venice. And then for his villas, which are, are scattered right across the countryside between. Venice and Vicenza, they find that some of them are private houses that are occasionally open to the public, others are museums, and some of them are even public buildings.
0: So have you seen them all?
1: I've seen most of them now. There's a couple in private hands I haven't got into yet. And
0: how did you find them?
1: They're wonderful. It doesn't matter how many times I've seen a Palladium building, doesn't matter how many times I've walked inside one of his buildings Uh, it's magnificent every single time. You walk in and there's a sense of calmness and order uh, about the buildings, about the structure, so they don't cease to be beautiful to visit.
0: They sound wonderful. Definitely something worth making the time to see. Thank you for talking to us today, Nick. Thank you. That concludes today's episode for The Thinking Traveller, a series brought to you by Academy Travel. To stay up to date with the latest conversations in this series, you can subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts or wherever you source your shows. For more information on Academy Travel's tour programme, to read other interesting articles written by their expert tour leaders or to catch up with them in person at a public event around Australia, visit academytravel.com.au. Until next time, I'm Jo Litson. Thank you for your company.